0: Welcome back everybody to the Classic Rock Podcast and coming up in this month's edition we welcome Pete Agnew, found a member of the Legends that are Nazareth, yeah what a band they were and still are, he joined me to talk about the release of their 25th studio album which I can tell you is very good and we're going to be looking back at how it all began and how on earth they came to be number one in Wichita. Now, there's something I bet you never knew. That is coming up a bit later, but first, a band who may have just slipped your mind. But they're about to enjoy a significant renaissance with the release of a new biopic. Who are they? Well, in the mid-late 70s and the early to mid-80s, they accrued platinum albums as if they were going out of fashion. Uh, they played the biggest venues that there were. They put on shows which, even by today's standards, were pretty epic. In fact, the Jacksons, yeah, remember them? They were so impressed with the stage and the light shows that were put on, they took the template for their own stage show. You still don't know who they are? Well, let's uh, let's get somebody famous, Steve Wozniak, to introduce them. Yeah, that's Steve Wozniak, who welcomed them to the stage in front of 300,000 people at the US Festival back in
1: 1983. Here's one of the groups that really believed in this event as we believe in them, Triumph! Live rock and roll should be
2: big and great and fantastic.
1: That's the element of rock and roll that keeps adolescent youth so gonzo about it. That gathering of 14,000 people in a hockey rink is the epitome of what we do.
2: These guys are from Toronto, and they're blowing triumph. up. Triumph, triumph, triumph! triumph rock and
1: roll. In the early '80s, Triumph was as big as Van Halen. They were as big as Motley Crue. Triumph.
0: As a rock fan, bands disappoint you and Triumph never did that.
1: They were the good guys in an era that was meant for the dirtbags. I was like, how are these guys not as big as Led Zeppelin? (laughs) And then all of a sudden, that's it. I broke their hearts, I know I did. There was a lot of guilt. The fallout from that was, was horrible. We went into a dark
3: place for years.
0: With Triumph breaking up decades and decades ago, we were left missing something.
1: We haven't played in a long time, but uh, we'll see. We've always felt this huge debt to our fans. This is about the three of us having an integrity and closing a chapter for the band. Oh, that's my old shirt, man. I think I had the coolest one, though. Well, let's start making them and see if we can sell them. So bootleg their merch.
0: Yep. And make some money. There you go. If you guessed it was Triumph, then well done to you. Now, the movie biopic is called Triumph Rock and Roll Machine. It's produced by Banger Films, who they do know a thing up to, don't they, about this type of app? But You might have uh, recalled... They did the ZZ Top film a year ago, which was a really great film. Uh, This is out early April. It's part of a special online event as well uh, with virtual meet and greets with the band. So go to the Triumph website for the full details. Anyway, I got up with Mike Levine to talk about the band, the film, the possible future. Yes, future. There is definitely, most definitely a tease at the end here of Something coming in 2023. Uh, But to take us there, let's just remind you of just how damn good a band they were. This is from 1981's Allied Forces. So, Mike, Rock and Roll Machine, the the biopic of Triumph. It is a remarkable story, well told, about three guys with a dream who begin with a plan of how they're going to make it. You've got business acumen as well as the creative talent. And we see this story unfold. Uh, And what's a real pleasure about this is we don't actually – See mention of uh, drug abuse, uh, alcohol abuse, wild parties, fortunes blown, uh, mega divorces. You were all very well behaved.
1: Yes, yeah, sadly, sad but true. Uh, uh, you know, we did have our moments now and then, but in general, um, you know, we were, I guess, for lack of a better uh, better way of saying it that. Uh, you know, when you're on the road, it's it's a grind, and it's rough. And a three-piece band, you can't really mess up too much uh, <laughs> because you're going to let the other guys down. If one guy's not on, the whole band's not on. Yeah, yeah. You know, so we, we, we just live by, okay, it's okay to have a few beers now and then. You don't know, have a beer turn the drum solo. Maybe have two if he plays a long one
0: that's about it <laughs> now, now you guys were were no musical amateurs i mean for you for you in particular after uh mother load you came into kill's band uh abernathy shagnaster's wash and wear band which is surely one of the greatest names for a band ever
1: that was a dumbass name. I hated it. I only, I only did it as you watched the film. I did it as yeah. a favorite to kill.
0: <laughs> it took him. Ten, what it take Ten phone calls before you actually <laughs> wavered and joined.
1: Uh, he just bugged the hell out of me. So you know, I, I, it was actually it was fun. It was a part-time thing. It was only supposed to be two or three weeks, right? So
0: you and him though did actually think about throwing in the towel at one stage, but decided to give it this one more shot. This is where you went on the hunt for the guitar
1: god. Uh, Yeah, that's true. It's um, the idea of running around with uh, a five or six piece band playing high schools on the weekends. It was fun for a part-time thing. But uh, if we're going to get serious, then we had to get serious. So Gil and I sat down and said, "Do you want to get serious?" <laughs> and we said, "Okay, let's give it a try." And let's so we, we brainstormed about how we would our ideal band and what we would do, and uh, you know how it would all work out. And um, we said, "Okay, we're going to pack this other uh, the you know, Abernathy thing. That's finished, you know." So. Uh, then, like you say, we went on the hunt for the guitar god, and not easy to do, but it was not happy hunting, it was difficult hunting.
0: You ended up uh, at this club watching this frog rock band called Act Three, uh, and where you obviously went to see Rick Emmett, and, and I love the bit about what made you make up your mind that he was the man. It was the moment that he did the flying V across the <laughs> stage and his shoe flew off. And he carried on and didn't miss a beat.
1: Uh, it's true. You know, he was, uh, we were pretty much knocked out with Rick. Uh, I remember Gil asking me, uh, I, I'm certain I'm flabbergasted how good he was. And, you know, Gil's a drummer, which is not really a musician in, in most, <laughs> most, most people's minds, but, uh. Uh, he said, "Man, he he looks really good. He sing really good." He said, "But could he play a whole lot of love?" Because <laughs> 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 they were the band was playing Gentle Giant and uh, early Queen, those kind of that kind of stuff. So I said, "If he can play that, he can play a whole lot of love. You know, not to worry." Okay.
0: <laughs> so what showed up actually was was this business acumen and this business savvy that you had, because you, you go in and sit down to try and tempt him to join, you actually wave a cheque in front of him. You've actually got a cheque from a record company, Attic Records, and you're offering him, what was it, $175 a week to, to join. It seems incredible. Now, how did you convince a record company to give you an advance based on a promise?
1: Um. It really wasn't that difficult, A, because um, uh, one of the partners at Attic Records was a friend of mine. We had known each other for a couple of years, and he was a former head of uh, promotion for Warner Brothers Records in Canada. And I was involved with the record label, uh, and so he let me travel the country with him. So when he threw a big party at the airport hotels for all the radio people and press people and whatever, Warner's. He he let me tag along and he introduced me to all these radio folks. So, you know, he was a good buddy and he left Warner's and was a partner in Attic Records. So I took Tom to lunch and said, Look, I got to create the world's greatest rock band. I have got two thirds of it now. And, um, you know, we did did a record deal and some money. So he looked at me and said, Are you serious? I said, Yes, I am. And he said, Okay, I'm in. (laughs)
0: I love it. What a great story. Uh, You, most bands actually, at that stage, if they'd have picked up a cheque, would have perhaps gone out for the next two months and drank it or blown it on drugs and parties. But you being you bought kit and lots and lots of kit and you had a big truck and you'd you'd be ferrying yourself around to the gigs and the locale. And turning up with this with a tr- truck with your name on and everything. I mean, it was like you were thinking big right from the right from the get go.
1: Uh Yeah, it was always the attitude: is you know, either go big or go home. And uh, went, whatever we could afford to do, we did. And if it meant we didn't take paychecks, then we didn't take paychecks. But um, you know, we started off small. You know, we had really uh, amazingly lousy gear that we do, that that was still pretty competitive for the level we were at, which was absolutely nowhere at that point. We we're just starting out, but uh, you know we just kept reinvesting into the band. You know, and we actually borrowed money. We went to the Toronto Musicians Credit Union and borrowed ten thousand bucks from them.
0: I'm trying to conjure up a vision of you guys in your garage working on homemade pyros uh, to take on the, on the road with you. The, were there any accidents?
1: Mm, several. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, let's see. Well, there was one that the Guild was messing around with that stuff at his house, and it, it put it kind of blew out the, the big picture window at the front of the house. <laughs> He didn't realize how, the, how much concussion there was in those things. So um, and we were buying the flash powder, it was illegal to buy it. We needed we, we had to get a license from the government to do it from the Department of Mines and Natural Resources to be able to buy the stuff. But, uh, so we got legal and uh, uh, figured out how to use it properly. But geez, Rick got burnt a couple of times. I got burnt once. Gil got burnt once. And after, finally, we just said it can't happen like this anymore. We got we built an absolutely foolproof, amazing uh, uh, pyro system. So we're on stage, and you know there's a pyro cue coming up, and there'd be these little red lights flashing. <laughs> 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 and then, then they come on, knowing you yeah, have five seconds to get the hell
0: out of the way, and you're
2: gonna <laughs> <get> going to
1: get blown up. <laughs> it's so after after that, nothing bad really happened. Thank
0: God. <laughs> now, with all the the great Cinderella stories, uh, there's a break, uh, and you get yours when uh, Sammy Hagar pulls out of this uh, radio premier event down in San Antonio, and you just stepped in. And literally from that moment on, you know, that was it. You were off and running because that was, what, 5,000-seater. You played a blinding set. And then that was it. You were off on a little mini tour around the area. I mean, it must have been an incredible moment, but big pressure.
1: It was big pressure. It was – we were playing on rented gear as well. You know, we had our guitars. And uh, I think because we had to fly fly down, um, it made no sense to truck, truck gear there because it was too far. I and mean, what the hell, we'll just, you know, take, a, take what we can on a plane with us. And we took a few road cases, I think ab heads, and then we rented, rented whatever we could rent or we needed to rent down there. And uh, we walked on stage and to say we were a little bit nervous, that would be an understatement. But you know, we owned the ideas from from don't want it. it. Was amazing. It was just an amazing feeling. We're looking at each other like, is this for real or what? You know, and we but well, guess what? You know, it taught us that we could play a big stage and be successful at doing it. And that was, <clears throat> that was early enough in our career. You know, we had made a record, but you know, it's like just making a record wasn't good enough, so to speak, right? You needed to have American distribution. And, uh, our worldwide distribution for that matter. Just, you know, we are getting big in Canada, we could play some concerts, but not huge. Mm.
0: Did you ever meet Sammy Hager after that? Did you ever uh, tell him about the, you know, the moment that you stepped in and how, you know, the the opportunity presented itself and you prospered?
1: Yeah, we saw Sammy at several gigs. We did uh, a a few dates that... uh, Festival-style dates, uh, you know, in football stadium, I mm-hmm. uh, played the Tangerine Bowl in Orlando or the Orange Bowl, I can't remember which one it was, um, with them. And, and ZZ Top played uh, some Tex- two Texas jams with Sammy. Actually, uh, Rick went up and, uh, and jammed with Sammy and Ted Nugent for Sammy's encore at, uh, at Dallas at Houston at the stadiums there. So yeah, Sammy he was kind of a friend. His manager had Loeffler, Rest of soul was a good friend. So we were always uh, we always you know, stay in touch and then. Or you know everybody's on the road doing their own thing, but uh, it was fun. You you,
0: you got back to, to to Canada. You you must have been fueled with an even greater self belief because you went from actually the Performing Arts Center, which is Mohawk College, in the in the February. To then, within a month, uh, going to the Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, did you have any fear? I mean, that you wouldn't sell it out, or because I mean, this is a, this was a major thing uh, in the film. We see even the manager at the time going, "Are you guys sure this isn't going to happen?" But it did.
1: <laughs> well, nobody believed in us more than us, so. Uh... <laughs> You'll see in the film, Michael Cole, who's you know still yeah. one of the biggest promoters in the world. I uh, uh, was Concert Productions International, and we had a sold out show at Massey Hall, which is a twenty seven hundred seat soft seat. Um, it's uh, uh, you know every musician growing up in Toronto wanted to play Massey Hall. That was like the thing, right? That's your first step into quote unquote stardom, hopefully. And uh, not, not a lot of bands got to do that, make that step. But then they said we couldn't use pyro there. And uh, so we said, oh, that's really a drag. Uh, too bad. Let's move the shorter Bay of leaf gardens. And my of goes, you guys are out of your minds. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that. And we said, oh, yeah, sure. Let's do it. No problem. He said, you, you, you can't. Said, Michael, come on. Be a sport here. So we you know, agreed to play for no guarantee, so zero money, but a big, most of ticket sales would come to us after expenses. So um, we sold out <laughs> and, uh, and we made a ton of dough. <laughs> and from then on, uh, you know, Cole was uh, a team player with us going, Yeah, you guys, you're amazing, totally amazing. And he has a few, few good quotes in the film.
0: Yeah, there's a load of good quotes in the film. I mean, the the bigger the crowd, the more it seemed to get you pumped and hyped. I mean, the, the Canada Jam, I mean, this was the biggest live event ever in Canada. It was on Canadian television. It was being beamed here, there and everywhere. Pressure to deliver, but you just go on and take it in your stride as if you've been doing these things every week.
1: It's, uh th- th- that was certainly uh, you know a, a, a great honor to be you know, selected to headline that show and there was a lot of it was really a bishwash of unmatched talent <laughs> but uh, you know I think the Commodores played on that show too <laughs> so if you want to try it for the Commodores makes no sense but yeah, yeah. it was it was early on in the world in the rock world you know that was uh, at the festival style show certainly in Canada so.
0: All this revenue flowing, and there's still you can see with you in the film. There's always forward planning. You're always thinking about you know, the next move. You then get the you know the studio up and going. Metalworks Studio comes in into being. You got bigger light shows, more and more investment in the the live experience. In fact, it's so good. And this story is one in the film that the the Jacksons come to see you. And I'm so impressed with the the live show and the whole thing that they Nick your lights engineer
1: <laughs> yeah they were um, uh, you know we won a uh, you know some awards from per- performance magazine which was the, like the billboard of uh, the live touring uh, uh, scenario so to speak you know all the agents um, agents and promoters were all part of performance magazine so I think it was, I don't know, Innovators of the Year or something we got. And we got word noted for having the best show on the road. So Michael Jackson wanted to have the best show on the road. So, uh, you know, he sent his scouts out, I think three brothers, <laughs> to, to come see us. I guess it was Albuquerque or something like that. And uh, uh, they loved the show. They went crazy and said, wow, this is amazing. And we sat and chatted. And, they ended up using our lighting company
0: and, and our, uh, our lighting director for the victory tour. Now, you get the first time overseas to the UK, which was uh, a burgeoning uh, market because of this, uh, the new wave of British heavy metal had just kicked in and it was it was a big scene of the time. Uh, what do you remember about your your first date if indeed you remember anything, uh, stepping on stage at a place that was called the, the Colston Hall in Bristol in 1980. With, uh, and you were onto with Praying Mantis. Right. It
1: was Praying Mantis. Wow. forgot all about the that. Um, yeah, amazing. Uh, to us, it was, you know, the weather was horrible.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah, no, That hasn't changed.
1: <laughs> it was cold and damp, and and the and it, it, the hotels had space heaters. It didn't work because there was no central heat in Britain at that point. I don't think. Uh, uh, and but the the actual venue and the fans. It was great. You know, we were really looking forward to it to, to that tour. But I think what we remember most was we had a driver that that did the whole tour with us. And uh, his name was Bill Churchman. And he was just uh, one of the funniest guys you'd ever be around. You know? So just quite, you know, cause we're, it's a snowstorm going from whatever, Birmingham to uh, Glasgow or something. And Bill would just be singing and dancing while he's driving, telling us great stories about you know, who else he had driven and what it was like and blah, blah, blah. So, it was cool, but the fans were amazing. It was uh, uh, it was really neat playing playing overseas for the first time for us.
0: You came back as well, didn't you, in the in the summer to play at a it was a big festival, open air festival at a place called Port Vale Football Ground, up in Stoke on Trent, which is where I, I'm wondering, actually, whether or not Slash would have been there on that day, watching that, because that's where he grew up, spent part of his life, uh, just around the corner from there. But that was a big event. Motorhead, Ozzy Osbourne, Frank Marino, and yourselves, and uh, uh, Riot, I think it was, and, and Vardis. Uh, how did that day go down?
1: That was a total disaster, Tim.
0: Oh, really?
1: <laughs> oh, <crap. laughs> Uh, uh, it was kind of cool, because uh, Phil, uh, God bless him, uh, promoter, had introduced us, and, uh, which was kind of cool. And Phil was so drunk, he could hardly wait, Gil and I kind of carried him out on stage. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we started playing, and it's like we're going, are we like that bad? The audience is paying virtually no attention to us, or half an environment, and we're going like, what's going on? What's happening? We're looking at each other like we've never, been, like, never had this happen before. Turns out half the PA is not working. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was a big venue, open air, and with only half a PA, it's like it sounded like an old style transistor radio out there. Do
0: so, you think that there was any shenanigans going on there? I because don't. Of- yeah. <laughs> yeah, because they know all about you. They've seen all. They've seen your shows. You know, they're thinking. Listen, we're not having these blokes come over here to blow us off.
1: <laughs> I don't think so. I like to think not. But um, uh, you know, we had our regulars. Just like Deadville, you know, something. And you know, that kind of shit does happen now and then, right? Yeah, So, if yeah. just somebody tripped on a cable or a fuse blew or something bad happened, and there you go. But we didn't get the PA back until to, to, to maybe the last couple of songs. And know, was so... Ooh. We kind of walked off stage. and went. Wow, that was kind of a waste of time, wasn't it, boys? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I remember the release of your your album around then, uh, Allied Forces, which was when you became quite big over here. Uh, and MTV had just uh, kicked off. But again, you know, you were at the vanguard of this whole video wave, even before that, because you're you're sitting down there like three professor guys as opposed to musicians thinking, hmm, these RCA people, they make video recorders, don't they? Why don't they make videos to go with the video recorders of us? And, and, you're, you're, and you even get them to give you more money to, to, to go and do it.
1: Yeah, that was, that was good of them. That was very nice of them to do that. They were, they were very forward-thinking, too.
0: How did you how did you get on with the, the the whole video making process? A lot of bands didn't like it, but it seemed really well suited to you because if it was concert footage or stage footage, I mean, it was it was an event whenever you took the stage.
1: Yeah, so um, we the first videos we made were live, you know, live concert stuff, and then as MTV, MTV evolved. Um, uh, it got into all this concept crap, you know. So, uh, you know, you had to hire, a, you know, a director and a scriptwriter and a prop person and have sets and goofy outfits and just, you know, be actors instead of being musicians, which we didn't like very much. Actually, we hated every minute of it. Uh, so it became like, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible, let's, let's go to the dentist have Root Canal instead. Uh, and we made some really bad videos. that are horrible. But, now,
0: listen, uh, when we see these things, when your fans watch this, uh, this film... Uh, the biopic. Uh, we would be. We were dreadfully disappointed that you didn't release the big white guitar flying <laughs> through space. <laughs> because the thing is, now it, you know, you might think that it looked bad then, but it's it's got that. It's so bad, it's good. Uh, it feel. Was, <laughs> yeah,
1: it was very spinal tapish, to say the least. You
0: know. Yeah. <laughs> I've got to mention but, uh, the. I've got, I've got to mention the us festival the the project involving Steve Bozniak and Bill Bill Graham first one in 82 lost huge sons I mean the second one didn't do particularly well but they changed the format on that second one didn't they so it was like new wave with uh, in excess and the clash on the Friday the heavy metal and the heavy rock on Saturday, and then it was Bowie and you two on the, the Sunday. The the day you appeared on that, uh, the heavy rock, heavy metal day, it outsold the others two to one. So, you know, you've done the the big Canadian uh, open air festival. You've played 100,000 people. What on earth was it like to fly in there and see 300,000 people waiting for you?
1: Well, it's funny because nobody knew how many people were really there because at some point the, all the fences got breached and fans just kept just poured in. So they never had an accurate count of how many people. They, if they knew how many people bought tickets, they had no idea how many people were in there. So it was a quarter million plus. For us flying in and, you know, the, 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 the helicopters, It was uh, uh, it was like a huge city. You know, it was pretty. It was pretty freaky looking down at it. And then when you're on stage, and you can't see where the people end, as far as you can see, there's no end to the the, the, the crowd. And you go, "Wow, that's pretty freaky, isn't it?" Mike. <laughs> it was it was tough to adjust because it was like play, you were playing a TV show. Really, there was you know 40 cameras. There was 30 cameras. I can't remember how many. Um uh, the nearest uh you know you're probably hundred feet from the nearest fan and then you're you're you don't know how people are reacting because you can't see them you can't hear them and but uh, you realize hey, it's a TV show play to the camera don't play you know don't play to the audience because nobody can see anyway <laughs> so uh. Uh, once we realized that, it became a lot easier to do the gig. But it was a struggle the first couple of songs for us.
0: After watching the the film, I think I was thinking the, the pace of your lives, the, the continual touring, the albums, I think what was surprising is that you didn't actually suffer burnout uh, Sometimes sooner. Does it actually look crazy now when you look back at how you actually went from zero to 100 in such a short period of time? And if you had the chance to go back now, would you have done it differently? Would you have maybe given yourself time off?
1: Uh, you know, it's an uh, interesting point. I can't remember if this government was addressed in the film. I don't think so, but uh, we were very particular about when we worked. So most bands, would, you know, hire a boss and play six or seven days a week. And, but we only averaged, I think our average uh, throughout our career was maybe 4.2 shows a week. Uh, so we, on Sunday night or Monday morning, uh, we wouldn't play Mondays, Tuesdays, or many Wednesdays. So, when we we're flying commercial, um, you know, we get up Monday morning and fly home. And we'd be home with our families on Monday, Tuesday, and a lot of Wednesdays. And then just go back on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday and play those four, four days. Uh, so, we kept in touch with reality. We weren't, you know, in hotels, going stir crazy, uh, you know, any of that. We, six, we could have made a lot more money. Uh, and The crew, like, because they had lots of days off. (laughs) (laughs) uh, For us, it was the only way we could do it. It's uh, like we couldn't, we tried it with a bus once, and I lasted two days on the bus. Uh, Rick lasted three, but it was Willie Nelson's bus. It was a beautiful bus. Uh, uh, So Rick and I were flying. Gil had the bus all all to himself. Uh, (laughs) But then we decided after the week, it was like, this isn't going to work back to airplanes and then we're you know at the point where you know we could we could uh fly private you know which which also was a a big bonus for us
0: i gotta i I gotta ask you do do you think that you guys were too nice for this industry you know with the way in which things were were run were, were you too straight were you too upfront too honest just too genuine did that hamper you? Do you think?
1: Uh, uh, I don't know. We could bullshit with the best of them, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but we were, you know, we preferred to make friends rather than yeah, make yeah. enemies. You know, yeah. every every, pro- you, every promoter, yeah, every promoter in America was our friend, every one of them. Uh, every radio guy, pro- program director in America, in Canada. Uh, was our friend, so we, you know, we were always nice to people. You know, hey, you do radio interviews, no problem. When do you want us there? Uh, whatever. It's just uh, good people. They liked being around us. We were successful, uh, but they were successful in what they did too. So we always got the benefit of extra airplay. If there was any extra dough to be made on a on a concert where the promoters would hide the money from the act <laughs> <laughs> they, they would come in our dressing room with uh, with some extra money and say, Here you go, guys. This is uh, this is on us. And uh but you can't tell your agent, okay? That's a secret.
0: Your t shirts pays to be nice on. Uh, the the other thing about the the film that I have to say uh, well, the animations, by the way, fit really well. And um, I was also amazed that you guys literally never threw anything out, ever. You you have everything. It was the, you know, inside in the warehouse at, at Metalworks, you were able to go and pull out yeah, newspaper reviews of your first gig, handwritten notes of uh, of song lyrics. You've got the old T shirts. You've got everything. It's all still there.
1: Yeah, that was uh, Gil. He, he would um, grab grab stuff from everywhere, and you know, had a specific road case where we, we called it the, Rick and I call it the junk case. Uh, but you know, Gil was a, he was a hoarder. That's, uh, lack of a better word, he could have been on that show, that TV show, the reality show.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but you know, every uh, you know every possible souvenir type thing, he grabbed. You know, right? which was great because we didn't have a real we didn't have managers, so nobody else was doing would do that, and uh, so Gil was you know he was very diligent in grabbing whatever he could packing it up and, and, and up on the
0: back of a truck back, back over to Toronto at some point. So that last question, uh, and I, it, you know, I suppose this is going to be the first question for many people. You've done all of this. You have uh, reignited uh, an interest in the band in the widest sense of the world. I mean, the, the, the super fans have always been there, but it's reawoken uh, an interest amongst um, the as we said the wider music listening world what you can't afford to do now really after all of that is just go away again i mean there there, there has to be there has to be a few live performances in the in the pipeline potentially or a, a festival appearance here and there
1: um you know we uh, it's that's a tough call you know i'd like to say hey we're ready to run, we're ready to go at any moment um uh maybe for something really special uh that we could we could handle it um it was tough enough gearing up just to play three songs for the for the movie uh required <laughs> on an entire show with that you know when it's at stadium level so it would have to be something incredibly special but we've you know we keep digging through the archives and finding neat stuff, you know. So at least from a, uh, a collector a musical point of view, you know, we found tapes of live shows we didn't even know we had. So you know, there'd be a good, you know a pretty good flow of uh, of old, old but good, but maybe some not so good stuff. We're like we're not, you know, we used to be embarrassed by things, whether mistakes, and we wouldn't release them, but now. You know that's that's what the fans want to hear as well, so that's yes, the same. True. You know it's, it's like the film, like no holds barred. You know the, everything's factual, nothing's made up, and uh, uh, that's pretty much how we're going to continue on and, and, and do things. And there may be there may be something special coming up in 2023 that we're I'm not sure it's going to actually work out, but I can't really talk about it yet. But it'll be really cool. It'll be it'll be really cool if it happens. And and the film, actually, speaking of the film, I don't know when you're airing this, but uh, uh, probably the first or second week of April, it's going to be streaming worldwide outside of Canada. It's will be like a pay-per-view. So do you uh,
0: know, is it Netflix or is it? um, No,
1: no, it's it's a private streaming. It's a one-time only pay-per-view with a meet-and-greet, with a a virtual meet-and-greet with them. So then maybe it's Netflix after that, we don't know, but it's going to be a special event style, and uh, it's going to be cool. We just don't have a final date yet, but sometime within the first two weeks of April, I'm told.
0: Wow. Nazareth are about to release a 25th studio album. Now, I caught up with founder member Pete Agnew to talk about this new album and to look back at that most memorable of decades, the 1970s, when, if you were growing up in that decade, there was, of course, a lot to choose from, wasn't there, in terms of bands to listen to, but very few had a vocalist that could perform quite like Dan McCafferty. 52 years since you made the move from up north down south. 51 years since the debut album. And here we are with album number 25, which sounds, to me, uh, modern, uh, fresh and most important of all, obviously, very heavy. How are you feeling about the finished product?
3: I'm very happy with it because, uh, well, the last one we did was tattooed on my brain. Which was the first one that we did with a with a new singer, you know, and uh, we were very very pleased with that one, and we, and I thought it was one of the best albums that we'd ever done in the Nazareth's career actually, and then always though when you get a big one like that, there's always the fear of coming up with the next one, isn't it? You know, you're always wondering, but can we can we follow that, you know? And I think we have with this one. I think we did with Surviving the Law. Um, I don't know. It's, it seems to be. I think. It seems to be a bit heavier than uh, a bit heavier, and bit in content as well than than uh, the, the last one. I don't know. I think that's everybody's mood being locked up when they were writing it. You know. Yeah, the, yeah. I think that's a lot to do with it. You know. what
0: was, what was the uh, the reason behind the title of the album? What's what's in there with reference to the law?
3: Well, it, was, it actually it was funny because uh, 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 we, we were. Um, I was actually talking to to Roger Glover, and they'd called their album. Uh, what was it? Um, what was it? So, what, what was the purple called that thing again? Oh, if the
0: Deep it, of the Covers album. Turning, 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 turning Yeah, to crime. turning to yeah.
3: crime. And I had been talking to him, and I said, I, I said, I, I can understand that, pardon said because we'd been out to try and do a couple of gigs in Europe. And it was the first time since Brexit, you know, and after the pandemic. So it was nuts, you know. And I was saying to him, we're just barely surviving the law, you know, with, with this travelling. And I thought, after that, I thought, yeah, that's, that's not a bad title, that, you know. And <laughs> to tell you the truth, that's what it did feel like, you know. We were, we've got all this, uh, well, I don't know if you're aware, but, you know, the, in, in terms of laws, laws are getting passed, hundreds and hundreds of laws are getting passed, like, every month. And they the, the pass laws so quick, you know, that they don't actually reach it to the statute books for a long time yet. But the thing is, you've still got to obey them, whether you know they're there or not. You <laughs>
0: know. Yeah, it's funny, actually. There's a load of they're new like, motoring laws, isn't there? And I saw one yesterday. The one about... If you've gone out all night and you've had a load of drinks and <laughs> you, you're trying to sleep it off in the car because you don't want to go in and upset the wife... <laughs> They can actually pull you and prosecute you for sleeping it off in the back of the car because you're in charge of a vehicle with the oh, keys. Oh, you're in charge of the vehicle
3: too. True, right? Well, you see, I wasn't. We weren't calling it survival law no, just from that point of time. But there you go. You see, that's what. I, <laughs> you're right. You know, you can't get pissed anymore and sit in your car. But no, the <laughs> the thing is, we were going over there. We were, you know, there were so many forms to fill these days when you're moving around. There was. Different border laws that you won't believe until you try it. You know when you're when you're going over there now. It used to be we just used to float in and out of Europe, no problem. You know it's different now. Uh, so, and anyway, just just, just in, generally, there, there's a lot of laws floating around that people don't realise they're there, and they're still they're still duty bound to, to obey them. So we figured like surviving the law. Yeah, you know it's it's quite a, it's actually it's quite uh, it's quite a task.
0: Tell me the addition of uh, Carl's sentence back in in 2015 was a, was a really inspired choice uh, i mean he was on grateful on the in the first album uh, and again here uh are you surprised at how well it's gone how well he's just fitted in and how seamless it appears to be taking into account the size of the task that was in front of him when he had to take over from dan yeah
3: yeah well you see that was always that, that was always going to be the tricky thing you know when, when dan had to pack it in I mean, even he said, you know, well, you've got to continue, you've got to keep going. And we thought, well, we'd like to, you know, because this is what we, we enjoy doing. But the thing is, we, to replace some, a guy like Dan with a voice like that, such a unique voice, it was going to always be very difficult because we didn't want, you know, the one thing we had to avoid was getting a Dan sound-alike, you know, and and that would have killed, you know, the people would have killed us if we'd have done that. You know, their, their well, the, the, the critics would have, and our fans, I think, they didn't want us to get somebody to come and imitate them, you know. And I got a lot of, well, we, we still call them tapes, audition tapes, but audition, uh, audition pieces were sent to me at the time when we were looking for singers. And a lot of guys were doing the dance soundalike, you know, trying to imitate them. And a lot of them were very, very good, by the way. They were, they were excellent, but that's not what we're looking for. We needed somebody that was a really good singer, but it was going to... I don't know, do Nazareth a bit different, differently, you know, than, than from Dan. So it yeah. was it was a pal of mine who, Ted McKenna, that was the drummer with Alex Harvey Band. Ted said, I know you, you should take a look at this guy. You know, he's a really great singer. He doesn't sound anything like Dan, but, you know, you take a look at him. So I went into YouTube and uh, I saw him uh, doing a couple of things with Don. Don Airy, him and Don are good friends. So he he was doing some stuff with him and he was doing some stuff in one of these classic rock tours, you know, where the it was going around the theatres and things and I saw some stuff, like I say, on YouTube and I thought, Yeah, this guy's very good. So let's check him out. And he and like I say, he didn't sound like Dan, but he had a tremendous voice, so we asked him to come up. We gave him like four songs to sing and he got up to come up to Scotland to a rehearsal studio. And we did the first number. To tell the Tim, we did the first number and halfway through. We kind of just stopped and went that's it. Like, the job's yours. You know, he just he like, just sounded so. <laughs> he's he was so good. You know, he's so really good. So he's he's fitted in well. And the the, the great thing about it was the fans actually did accept him. We, you know, he thought he'd maybe got a harder time than he did. You know, we and we did expect. You know. You have to get a little bit of uh, you know a bit of ribbon from the the fans, and of course you're always going to get one or two people you know that ah you'll I'll never be the same unless it's the original mm. lineup this kind of thing, but of course yeah yeah but, but you know you always get that everybody gets that but no he's he's taken he's taken over uh, very well and and the two albums he's um, He's, he's performed wonderfully on them and the the great thing about uh carl as well he's very very good live he's a very good front man you know he's uh, he's a great uh, entertainer he's a good performer so everybody's happy hi
0: Uh, this year after the release of the first two albums the the self-titled Debut 71 and uh, Exercises in in 72 you got the opening slot on on the Deep Purple tour what do you remember of touring back then with what was uh, one of the biggest bands in the world, and I think your first ever gig with them wasn't it in the in the USA? Was on St Patrick's Day. It was so that must fun- have been an amazing <laughs> thing.
3: <laughs> funny you should say that. Not many people realise that it was St Patrick's Day in Kansas City. It was uh, it was fu- quite funny because the week, the Friday before, we were actually playing in a ballroom in air. And uh, we were all sort of singing, you know. We're going, we'd never been to America or anything, you know. And we hadn't been a full-time band that long, but I remember when we come out of the, in the dressing room at air and, and up home, and everybody's going on about singing Kansas City, Kansas City, here I come, you know all this stuff, you know. And of course, uh, when we got to Kansas City, you know, and we realised it was a dry state that we were in. <laughs> trying to get a drink, it was unbelievable. The place was dead, you know. When we were going, you know, it's a lot more fun in air. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> no, but it was it was great. The thing is with Deep Purple at that point, I mean you see one of the biggest bands in the world. Well they are now, but at that point that was just at that point where they were just becoming that you know, the the I think it was machine that yeah, yeah. came out at that point. And yes. that was that was with those In nineteen seventy-two, that's when they went um, really large, you know, because there was them, Buddy Miles, and us on that tour. We did another tour, and I think after the next tour, they were really, they were really huge. But it was anyway. You had an
0: occasion. I was going to say you had an occasion over there as well, where you ended up doing a show which had Thin Lizzy opening, Slade on it. And uh, you as the headliner, what a uh, night that must have been.
3: Well actually it was quite funny because we were, we were actually touring, uh, we did well by this time we were doing very well in the States, we'd had the, you know, Love Hurts and all that, and Thin Lizzy came out as a, as our a opening band for the whole tour and and it was great because we knew the guys and they were good pals anyway, you know, so it was wonderful where they, they used to go and do their bit, we'd go and do our bit, and it was a, oh, about three quarters of the way through the tour in America. We were Slade uh, joined the tour for uh, for a couple of nights. I think not, they they joined for a couple of nights, and then Lizzie had to go away, and then Slade stayed with us. You know for the for the next till the end of the tour but it was funny because when we were looking at the time or, or had it been a year before we were looking at the sort of billing and it was Nazareth Thin Lizzy and Slade and if it had been back in the UK it would have been upside down it would have been you know Slade Thin Lizzy and Nazareth you know the, the 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 billing if you like you know Yeah so, yeah it was, it was kind of all back to front because, well, it's a different place, isn't it? It's a different place. And the different hey. bands were a bit bigger than others at the time. You know, Slade never really took off in America, which is Bizarre. really strange, strange, strange because they were a great band, you know. and
0: uh, hey, Tell me, it, what was the story behind you having a, a number one album in Wichita? <laughs>
3: that was... A, hey, you know more or something. You, you, you definitely know about us, don't you? <laughs> You've read up your Nazareth. <laughs> you, you you make me think here. Um, I we were, it was it, it was the very first album that came out, the, the Nazareth album. Yeah. Nazareth. and uh, when we came, when we, um, when we got when we got into America, before even before we got there, they told us that on, for some reason we're a number one album in Wichita, and I was like, what? How's that? Of course, we weren't playing Wichita on the tour because it was a. It was a deep purple tour, you know, so we were just going where they went. But we couldn't understand how we had this, why this thing happened. I think it was one of the, I think the story we eventually heard was one of the the, the the DJs at the, you know, they've got all the local radio stations there, you know, that we didn't have at the time. You know, it was really just the beep we had here and and then we were getting radio force and stuff like that but there in America you know every city every town had about three or four radio stations so we were getting played mad over there and uh, it was funny though, know because you know we never uh, in all the years even after the band became bigger in America we never ever played Wichita and we went we went for years and years and years and we never played there and uh, so eventually we um, we got a gig in Wichita, and this was about oh, must have been nineteen seventy nine or something like that, nineteen eighty. And we get to the we get to the gig, and it was a complete mess. It was terrible. It was actually awful, you know. And seemingly, it was being run by the son one of the city's what's what she say, gangsters, if you like, you know. that was it was actually putting this this gig on. So the whole thing, we were, we were there with trucks and all sorts of stuff there, thinking, oh, we're going to play Wichita at last. But we didn't, you know, we ended up, that the, the whole thing was just a mess. You know, this guy was, he must have been the lunatic son that they just let him, you know, give, give him something to do. Oh, I'll put on a gig, you know. So I never did get to play Wichita. And I think, I think we've only, I think we never did it until about the 90s or something, you know. So by that time we weren't number one anymore, you
0: know. Whatever it is, a <laughs> <Hey>, Roger Glover <laughs> who produced what was the big breakthrough, thing, wasn't it really? House, which was a platinum seller. It was yeah. huge in, in North America and Canada. Uh, you're on. You get a lot of TV. You got "Broken Down Angel," "Bad Bad Boy." The singles. Did when you finished that album, did you actually sit there, listen to it, and think, right? Let's just sit back and wait for the money to roll in because this is the big one.
3: Well, actually, you know, when, when we did, we actually wrote when we actually wrote all the songs for Rasmus and Az, <clears throat> We, knew we had one. You know, we, we had the first two albums, and, and <clears throat> we hadn't really decided what we were going to be at that point. You know, we hadn't, we, we didn't know. It's a, um, you know, when we did exercise, if you hear that album, it's not a rock album. You know, we we did, we, we were still playing about. We are we going to be a kind of country band? Are we going to be what? I don't know. But then we started writing songs again and went in that r- the rock direction of Lee, what was comfortable to us. And we did Reservoirs. And we had all those songs and we toured America with, with Deep Purple. When we came back, we'd written these songs and we toured Britain with them. We did a British tour with Deep Purple and that's when we got talking to Roger. We were playing... Razamanaz, and and we were playing songs from that album on this tour. Although we'd never recorded the album, which hadn't been recorded yet, so he actually heard quite a few of those songs. You know, before we got in the studio. You know, so we we actually knew. You know, if we could get this thing done right, that we had a hit album in our hands because it was just. Mm. You know, this the material was just so obviously good. You know, and uh, even if we say so ourselves. So we did. You know, we did. We did think we had we had one on our hands, and then when we, when Roger came along and produced it and uh, did a marvelous job. Uh, in fact, I, I really can I really consider that album the beginning of my recording career. You know, because up until then, yeah, yeah. we were just fannying about in the studio. We never we never really knew how to use the studio properly. You know, when we did the first album, the second album, we were. I mean, we had good guys. I mean, the second album was Roy Baker, Roy, Roy Thomas Baker, who, at the time, he was he was starting out with Queen at the time as well. So it, it, it just it was just us. We didn't really, I don't know, we didn't have the confidence in the studios up to then. When we did Razum and Az, that's when Roger sort of, really taught us how to use a studio you know and uh, i'm forever thankful to him for that you know and there's there's things that i still do now there's still things that i do in the studio i think like and i remember roger used to say you know even after all these albums it still sticks in your mind you know things that you were told back then so we were a good but it seems incredible
0: that the work rate that you guys had back then World tours, produce an album, then well, after has No Time to Rest. You got a second album out in nineteen seventy-three, mm. loud and proud, no let up mm. in the in the quality, because the you know the hits are flowing here. You know, this flight tonight yeah, yeah. the top ten here. How did that come about by the way? Because well, you what else you seem to have is this prodigious talent for picking songs or cover versions, but you made sound like yours. And if you ask people today, yeah, oh, this flight tonight, or it. Yeah, Nazareth songs. I, oh, I don't sure. think anybody would have an idea that anybody else had done them. So you picked well.
3: That's actually is exactly what you're saying. Is what you've got to take a song if you're going to cover a song, you've to you've to change it. You know, you have to make it yours. And 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 we did it with Love Hearts as well. But with, with this flight tonight, it was especially such a different from Joni, you know, it was just I mean, it's two different songs really, and I remember when we let her hear it, when the, the day that it was released in Britain, we were actually in uh, LA, and in Hollywood, and she was recording in A M studio and we were visiting the studio, they said oh, Joni's recording, do you want to go and see her? So we went and said hello, and uh, we said, by the way we've, uh, we're have we re- releasing this flight tonight um, in, in Britain today, and she said with a rock band, you know, we said, "Well, we we'll let her hear it." We we'll had a copy, and we played it to her. And she was absolutely knocked out. Um, and it was so funny because when she came to play in Britain, she did a tour, but a year or two after that, I think she opened at the Queen Elizabeth Hall. She said, "As she said, I'd like to start the show with a Nazareth song." <laughs> <laughs> so we thought that was really nice, you know. <laughs> if you're going to cover someone, you've got to make it yours, you know, and 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 hopefully that people do think of that song is being yours. I, I, we, we used to do this all the time, Tim. We we, we did. We covered songs that we used to listen to when we were running around in the van, traveling between shows, you know, and it was our kind of f- favorite greatest hits kind of thing. So we'd listen to Crazy Horse and we'd listen to Joni. We had a whole array of people, little, little feet, all the different bands that we liked. And, and we'd maybe, we will take one of these songs and, and we'd do them in the studio. But would make it sound like a well completely different what we had. I remember one time we were up in um, in Canada recording, and we were talking about doing a song, doing a, a cover song. And one of the songs that we always thought was a was a great record. This is just to give you an example of you know how things go. I remember one of the greatest records we all thought was uh, well Tiger Woman with a move. You remember that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was and it was just an, an amazing track. And we used to play it back in the ballroom days. So we went into the studio and said, "Let's do you know, tiger Woman, wild tiger women." And said, "All right, let's do it." So we recorded it, and we did a very, very good version of it. But it sounded just like the move, you know. It was just, it was just like a ballroom band would play it, you know. They they learn the thing and play it like a human jukebox. You used to be like that in those days. So it was you, you, it was it was pointless. It's, it was pointless, you know. There's no point in putting a thing out like that that's just, you know, the same as the one that's. The one that was the, the the original, you
0: know. No, no, you're right. But again, after that, you, you were only out, off for, for months. And John, uh, Roger Glover's last album was uh, rampant, wasn't it? That's uh, right. But again, you utilised a bit more Deep Purple in there. Didn't you have John Lord working on that as well, on shanghai in Shanghai? Uh,
3: it was funny because what happened, we were in, uh, we went to, well, when we did the first two, Razzam As and Loud and Proud, which was really like, I mean, I consider those two really just a double album because there was hardly space in between them. You know, the, the, to, to do anything, we we, we finished Razzam and I just went out and and come back in and recorded Loud and Proud. And it wasn't long after that that we went out to do um, uh, Rampant. And again, that was at Roger's suggestion because when, when we went to record with him at first, I remember him saying, you know, you guys, you don't seem to like the studio much. You should record with you're when you're comfortable. So that's why we did Razzam and As, Loud and Proud with a mobile studio up at a rehearsal place in Scotland. And and it was great how it turned out. So he said, well, the mobile seems to work for you now. So when we do rampant, he says, how's about we go and do what Deep Purple did uh, just before us. They'd recorded uh, with the Stones mobile in Montreux and down in the basement of the convention centre. And... uh, so that's what we did. We went to Montreux and we recorded with the Stones Mobile, the same as they did, um, in the basement of the Convention Centre. And that's where, obviously, remember that's when they wrote "Smoke on the Water." When they, they were supposed to be using the other studio, and it all burnt down. You know, when Slappa <laughs> uh, was playing that night, and there, he was "Smoke on the Water." Yeah, yeah. But anyway, we, we went to uh, we went to Switzerland, and we were recording and. Of course John was in town, you know, he was just, I think he was, I don't know, he was just visiting somebody there. So we thought, well you're here, Um, come and stick a bit of Joanna on this thing here. So uh, it was good, it was good. Uh, John just came in and rattled it out in one take. It was was good fun.
0: You ask a guy on the street about Nazareth, who grew up in the 60s and 70s listening to it and uh so take, give us a song what's the first song that comes to mind a lot of people will say yeah love hurts from Hi. the hair of the dog still played a hell of a lot yeah uh, today again the eberle brothers wrote never released it originally but there's an interesting story isn't there about how it came up how it came to be recorded vocally as it did because yeah, there's, there's you at a wedding up in Edinburgh with the That's guys right. in the studio down south. That's uh, right. You were initially going to use harmonies like the Everly Brothers, That's but right. in the end, it was it was a master stroke.
3: Well, what happened really was that we used to the, the version that we used to listen to that we loved was uh, Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou Harris on the Grievous Angel album. That we used to play this in the van. And it was them singing love hurts and what we were going to do is uh we were going to do it as a b but in fact we did we recorded it as a b-side we were down in escape studios in kent and you know in those days when you recorded when you said when you released a single maybe you only had like nine tracks on your album you released a single they used to stick another track and put it on as a b-side if you released two singles that was another two two tracks as a sides and then two tracks as a b-side you know, uh, coming off your album. You were stripping the album. So that's when bands started recording b-sides, you know, and saying like, we'll record this, it doesn't get, not stripping the album anymore, you know, and just get some throwaway thing as a b-side. So we, th- we thought, well, we've well, got a deal of hurts. So as you say, Dan and I got recorded, we, we got invited up to, it was Jerry Gilbert, the guy who wrote with sounds, it was to his wedding up in Scotland. So we flew up to Scotland. Uh, on a Friday, went to the wind on the Saturday. And we come back to the studio on the Sunday, and Mary and Daryl had put down, you know, a rhythm track just the guitar and the and the and the and the drums. They said we recorded love Hurts I said, he said, stick a bass on. So I said, aye, okay fine. So I went and stuck the bass on it, and we realised that they'd actually done it the same key as Emmylou Harris and and and, uh, and Grandpas, which was lovely. But then uh, when Dad come to sing it. It was just too low you know when he sung it at the same and the same height as them it just sounded flat you know and it was no oh, listen it's not very good you know and I and okay i could sing a harmony on it but we thought it's just going to sound like a bad version of theirs vocal you know and dan said hang on a minute let me try singing it on the octave you know, and we thought, well, I don't know about that because when it comes to the middle, you know, like this top E thing was in it. I thought, that, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to make this. Anyway, he went in and he sung that vocal, and I could, well, none of us could believe it. When we were actually sitting there listening to this unbelievable vocal, and uh, to this day, I think it's still one of the best rock vocals that's ever been recorded. And, uh, oh, ever! And it's unbelievable. Yeah. Just, it's just, it's just classic. Anyway, he sung the thing, and we were absolutely gobsmacked. With that was amazing. And, of course, then somebody said, Are you got to put a harmony on it? And I said, you must be kidding. You know, so, uh, we, so that was it. And it was still, it was great. We finished it. And it was still a B-side. So when they re- when they released uh, Hair of the Dog album all over the world, it came out in America last, funny enough, uh, with a Records, but it had already been released and Europe and Canada and, well, everywhere, South America. And the song that was on it, the, the slow number, if you like, it was on it was Guilty, the, the Randy Newman song. And mm. uh, we'd done Guilty. In fact, we had uh, Max Middleton playing, you know, Jeff Beck's keyboard player at the time. Because when we recorded the album, we were down in Escape Studio and Jeff Beck used to drop in just because he lived down there and he used to do demos in there. We used to, you know, and we, we were doing Guilty and he said, we needed a piano he said I'll get Max to come in so he got him mean, he come in and played on it and things so anyway that I, I, dive, I, dive I, I, I digress from what we're saying here um, yeah we, we did, <laughs> but, we, sorry when we finished with the Love Hearts thing and when we went to America Jerry Moss of AM Records yeah. who was the M in the A&M he had been listening to all the stuff before the put and he said look this track here is unbelievable this is this is going on I'm taking Guilty off the album and I'm putting love hearts on it. And thank you, Jerry. That was the greatest thing that ever happened to my career. That decision. That decision was made by him. Of Do you know what?
0: It's all. It's often the case. I have to say. I was talking to uh, Randy Batman a, a while back. And he was talking about, uh, You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, right. because that track was never supposed to go on an album. It was the record company exec sitting there going, we need a single. And someone's saying, well, we got this Chuck Away thing that we did with him imitating. He didn't want it on there because it was imitating a speech impediment that his brother had. Right. Where, you know, the bit in the middle, ba yeah, 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 yeah. And he just said, we we never wanted that on there. And the record company executive at time said, well this is this has got to go on there and the rest is history there you go you see do you remember the reviews at the time i don't know whether you ever keep any of the reviews but one of them that i i read discussing the extraordinary vocal on that track said dan McCafferty screamed as if he were falling into a pit of despair How great a line is that?
3: Well, you say, let's like see. We never pay that much. We never pay that much attention to reviews, you know. As if we always said, like, you know, we've always said, you know, to when young bands are asked, you your, you know, your opinion, how you should handle things and how you should do this and, that. and one of the things is reviews. And you've always got to think that if the guy likes you, he's got a wonderful taste, and if he slags you, he's an asshole. Right, so, so, you know, you don't, you know, he's got no clue. So that's the way to think it. We, we don't really pay any attention to reviews. It's nice to get good ones, but um, that 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 one could probably be, I don't know. It could, depending could depend on what kind of music you like. That could be a good review.
0: Oh, that's a fantastic review. <laughs> I think. I mean, it's yeah. like managing to drum up that level of emotion. Yeah. Uh, to put it, it's just it's just extraordinary. Actually, what uh, was
3: actually what it was? It was it was pain, <laughs> just trying to just trying to reach the notes. No, it was uh, it was quite amazing actually because he did that vocal up in uh, Air Studios, you know, because the studio were recorded in, I mean, it was so, oh, it was Neanderthal, you know. That we couldn't do vocals or anything in it, we could do the backing tracks. So we went up to Air Studios and Oxford Circus there, and that's where Dan did that. Well, we did all the vocals up there for that album actually. But that was um, that, and that was that was really just. I mean, it was it was almost like a one take thing, you know. He did, uh, yeah, he went all the way through and he did the middle, uh, you know, the, the the middle eight if you like. He did that a couple of times, you know, just to 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 kind of choose which is the best, but every time he sounded it, great, it was just, it was just incredible. It was just, I'll never forget it. Really, I'll, that's one of the the few that uh, I mean, we've we've done hundreds of songs together, but I remember actually sitting in the studio and being speechless when he did that one. <laughs>
0: tell me how did you come across the track my white bicycle because th- that was this heavy uh, s- psychedelic uh, piece from a band called tomorrow, tomorrow back in 1967 which had steve howe on uh, again i, I mean I, I have to say i mean, I, did, I didn't know it, I, I pulled it up actually and listened to it uh, yesterday and yeah. um yeah, your version's ten times well, <laughs> well, I mean,
2: what theirs
3: is. Well, what was what what happened with that was that, um, we used to do that one. when we, we when, again before we were a before we were like a full time band, we um, you know we played Well, we, we played all over Scotland, but for a while we were a, like a resident in a ballroom in, in our hometown. You know, and there was just songs that we never did. They had two kind of band. They had two bands. Well, they had three bands, but they had two. Guitar bands, like uh, if you like, and one of them used to do all the pops, all the top ten, no, the top twenty, the top forty stuff and that, you know. And actually, Manny played in that band as a guitar player uh, back in those days. And we used to do cover verses, but we didn't do the sort of top forty. We just picked stuff we liked, you know. Like, and we used to do mm. We had a we had a really we'd a really good um, um, set, if you like. I remember we used to do uh, well another one that we kept meaning to. To, to do and some time was meet on the ledge with Fairport Convention. That was a, a track we've always meant to cover that at some point. We might even do it, yet, yeah, I don't know. But that was one that we've, we've tried that in the studio a few times, it never really worked out. But we used to play songs like that. And we did um, Tomorrow's uh, that, that My White Bicycle, we did, we did uh, and we used to play that one. And, and uh, of course, by the time we got to the studio, to, we said, oh, let's do that one. Uh, and it had just developed to in a, a, a different you know, a different way. And I think when in the original when we originally did it, we used to have the original bass player in the cadet, so I never played bass in it, you know, so I was just singing in it. Mm-hmm. So by the time we got to recording it I was playing bass and we did that bass part for it and things and uh, Yeah, it turned out really good. It was just one of these songs that we heard and we covered, you know, and, and with the amateur band if you like.
0: I've got to ask you B, uh, before we, we, we finish uh, a bit about your your best friend, Dan, Dan. I mean, there are very few musicians that have had a, a friendship and a partnership for as long as you two did. And not many people may know that you, you met each other aged five on the first day of school when you're sat in the same desks Next to each other.
3: It was uh, when we went there the very first day. You know, we went and uh, you know your your mummy would take you to school and get you all put in the door. You know, for the for the to get your first day there. And uh, so I was all these double desks they had at the time. you remember, The kids these days would not remember. <laughs> Couldn't
1: even imagine that. <laughs> With he the inkwells, well. yeah. and uh,
3: <laughs> so Dan and I were next to each other, you know. And, I've, and what I remember at the time, he spent he, he spent the biggest half of the day crying for his mum. You know, he was he was really upset being there. Anyway, he, he <laughs> yelped for a bit that day, but we became we became best friends that day, and that was it ever since. I, mean, I remember when we had, when he had his sixth birthday party. It was him and me. It, we, we were only I was the guest. And he was the host, and, I was, and uh, we were just best pals. We went to school together all through our career, and uh, just we just knew each other all our lives, you know. And even when I when I started the band, and I started playing, we were playing around with the Shadets, I was the, the, the singer, the lead singer with the band. Well, it was my band, and um, and Dan used to just hang out with us. I mean, he used to come with me, you know, to the to to all the gigs that we played. He used to be up dancing, and he'd go out and pull all the women. You know, he had a, he he used to request all the songs. Come up and say, "Hey, give me three slow ones here, pal. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna ask her up," and. Uh, so we, you know, we had we were pals, you know, just mates, and he used to travel around with us in, in, in the van. And it was when we had a, at one point we had a, a kind of, another guy in the band, Des, I got him to join, and him and I were doing a kind of twin vocal thing for a while. So he left, and, and that was at the time somebody, I can't even remember who said it. We were saying, it would be nice to get somebody else singing. And somebody said, what about Dan? You know, he can sing, we've heard him singing in the van, you know, he sings with us. And everyone went, oh, right, maybe that could be an idea. Let's see. Let's have a go. And that was it. <laughs> Do you fancy having a shot? And they went, aye, why not? And um, and that was it. That was it. That's history.
0: That was it. His very High-heeled first sneakers.
3: gig was the YM and Kirkcaldy, and his very first song was High Shield Sneakers. And it was so funny, actually, because... The night before, when we asked them to join the band, what we did is uh, the night, that was the Saturday night we played it, the Friday night we went to the guitar player's house, just the guitar player and me, and I played guitar at that time as well, and we sat with Dan and we we got him to do like six songs, because I was still singing all the other songs with him, and we just need you to do half a dozen on your own, so let's, and we run through them, but we run through them just acoustically, you know, just sitting on the couch, you know. He never so when he went up on the stage, he'd never actually stood in front of electric guitars and the drum kits and anything. He'd never and he was singing this thing live. Just think about this: this is a guy that just run about me, run about me as a pal, you know. And the next thing, he's up on the stage there in his yellow suit, you know, <laughs> and the very first song. And of course when the band started, you know, the the intro to high heel sneakers, the the red da come and Dan just froze. He just couldn't believe the noise at the back of him. And it took, you know, about four beats before he started singing... put on your red dress. It was very, very funny, you know, when he his first go And then after that he never looked back. It was uh and he And he did a fine job for a long, long time. So, to tell me, you're
0: 61 years into a career that began in the very early 60s. What's been the biggest source of satisfaction? Your your greatest moment?
3: You know, there was. The most. I mean, I don't. I don't know. There was so. The, the, really, so so many of them, you know. So many. But I mean, the, actually, the, the the I remember the, the one of the, one of the things that was very, very was a big big deal with us, is where our very first gig outside of Scotland was the Marquis in London, and you, the the Marquee was an iconic place for anybody that was you know, well anybody anywhere, you know anybody that was in a band. The Marquee was like the mecca. You know, for, for, uh, for, for bands, for you, you, everybody played there. The Who used to play there every week. The Stones played there, and you know, and uh, and that was our, when we had come down from, the sticks, to play in England. Our very first gig was the marquee down there. And that was a it was a, a great thrill just to step up on that stage that night, you know, thinking that, like, hey, you know, we've arrived. We've arrived. You know. And we never even recorded a we recorded a, a song by that at that point, you know. So that was a big thing, but I, I don't know. There was so many things, Tim, you know, your first getting your first hit and getting this and getting that and the first time playing in America. I mean we play since that, you know, we played the Superdome in New Orleans, you know, you, when you think back to the Cannibal kind of Ballroom and then the same band was playing in the Superdome it's quite, it's a big jump you know, uh, there was lots of great thrills in the career another one was uh, I, I, I suppose an, an, another big one for us is when the first time we played in Moscow because nobody from uh, nobody from Britain I mean, we've, we've toured Russia more than any Western band, and we've done more shows in Russia than any 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 other band in the world that's not Russian, and probably more than most Russian bands. And uh, that was that was a big thing, you know, when we when we first went there. And it was it was it's actually quite funny, you know, because um, we were talking about it the other day. There, uh, somebody did a book on us, a Russian guy did this big book. It's a phenomenal book that they they, they did, and it's a photographer guy out there from uh, Novosibirsk, and he sent me a copy. And I was looking at all the, the shows, the list of shows that we'd done, and I realized that we'd played in Moscow 51 times. i have done 51 times in Moscow. And oh, you know, wow. I've never played 10 shows in Aberdeen. Uh, I've probably only played in Dundee, maybe eight times. you know, But I've played Moscow 51 times. So it's, it's a funny life, huh? Eh?
0: Incredible. <laughs> He ended that well, didn't he? It has been a hell of a life. And there is still more to come. That new album is uh, very shortly by uh, Nazareth. And that is it. I hope you've enjoyed what has been uh, a bit of a marathon uh, this month. We will be back again in a few weeks time we look forward to your company then uh don't forget to uh, catch up with all of the previous editions of the podcast are available you can go to the website where you'll find them and uh, we will be back as i said in a couple of weeks time until then from me tim cable bye-bye for now